welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Andy. And I am Zach. And up next, listener questions about marathon tempos, runners, knee, and weighted shoes. And after that, World of Running Complete World Championships results and analysis. Welcome back again, and welcome to the monthly Q&A episode, which means every time we say you should submit your questions, it's all about this episode, and we're going to answer them here soon. But there's always still good opportunity to ask more questions anytime, not only because we'll queue them up for the next one if you uh, ask them now, you can't get on the current episode because by the time we're saying these words to you, we've already answered the questions for this week. But you should still ask them because we'll share some thoughts in an email response and or at the end of the next month as well. So go to adzrunning.com slash question to do exactly that anytime. And just because you've asked questions in the past doesn't mean you can't do it again in the future. Mm -hmm. So in case you were curious what Andy and Zach do for fun, aside from talk about running, which, which is basically all that we actually do for fun, um, but... On occasion, in addition to talking about running, we watch running. We like to watch running. We, it's true. We do. It's very fun. In fact, I had a couple friends over the other day, and we cheered on Team USA in the World Championships. It's a good time. It's a know? good time. I feel like a lot of runners like watching running and food, so it's bound to be a successful get-together if yes. you have both of those things. <laughs> and I have a, a nice little tip for you. Because if you feel like, well, I kind of like watching running, but nobody else that I know likes watching running, enter the sociology, sociological concept, social referencing. What this means is essentially the thing that you demonstrate interest in and affinity toward tends to be contagious to those around you. So, for instance, our seven-year-old son said, and I quote, <laughs> not long ago, I like watching the long races. Actually, he said the long distance races because he's, you know, he knows what he's talking about. So I like watching the long distance races. And I said, oh, why is that, son? And he said, because they're not over too quickly and you can watch more of it. And more things happen. And he sat through the entire women's marathon coverage while we watched it, watching it along with interest. Yes, that is our seven-year-old son, which means we have been successful parents. <laughs> is that all it takes? Well, it's <laughs> I wish. one piece of the puzzle. So that being the case, we did enjoy a lot of, I mean, world championship season. The only thing better than world championship season for, you know, watching interesting things is Olympic season because we actually like watching other sports too, but mm -hmm. not like those those major league ones that everybody watches all the time. We don't watch any of those, but track and field is awesome. Yeah. We love it. Well, let's get on to answering your questions. Well, I suppose the only thing that we like talking about more than sitting around talking about running or watching running at that is sitting around talking about running as it pertains to your questions. Mm -hmm. So first up to start us off, Great question from Chelsea, a listener here, and she writes, Earlier this year, I developed runner's knee. Oh, sorry to hear that, Chelsea. 
or something similar, but knee pain. Um, I'm experiencing so much frustration trying to return to the basic amount of running that I feel like I need to feel healthy and happy. We get it for sure. And we, we feel you on uh, that's, that's very difficult and very frustrating to be sure. So here's the context. This is the, the background that she shared. I'm a female runner in my thirties. I've been running consistently for 15 or so years. Wow. Well done. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and then she gives the range. So 15 to 20 miles per week might be like the normal kind of basic fitness standard. But sometimes, uh, depending on the season and the goal, run up to 30 to 40 miles in a given week, um, preparing for certain races, things like that. Until now, I have never had any kind of running injury that kept me from running the mileage that I intended. Wow. Yeah. That's very impressive. Definitely. And great work on, at that, too. Um, so why this time is the big question here and mm -hmm. what to do about it. Um, so she, she continued on, uh, here's what happened in a six month marathon buildup. Um, distances were comfortable. It wasn't like, wasn't out of reach, uh, somewhere in kind of the middle or last third, I guess. Well, literally last third week, 16 of 24. So she began to notice uh, mild swelling in one knee after long runs. And then eventually both knees, um, and it was worsening slightly each week. Okay. Those are bad signs for sure. Yeah. Um, she did still end up doing the race because it was so close to it. She didn't want to take the time off at that point. So just tried to kind of power through it. And afterward, then tried to really rest up, switch to just cross training with a little bit of running and physical therapy um, as well, which is good. And then now we're talking about it two months or so after that, and still the knee pain is not better and might even be worse mm. and not really hardly running at all. So that's tough. Um, she And then she wrote kind of like her three specific questions here. Um, what what advice can you offer to an average runner trying to recover from something like this? What is it possible to be running at least a few days per week, like light and easy running and still recover? And with all of that, what kind of professional uh, might be the most helpful to get the to the bottom of this. Okay, Chelsea, sorry to hear it. This is yeah, tough. Sorry, Chelsea. Yeah. So anytime an acute issue becomes chronic over time like this, um, these are the most frustrating situations, especially because it's keeping you from basically any amount of running activity, um, and as well it should when it's when it's that bad, and and you're not doing much activity, you certainly shouldn't be trying to do any more. So a couple of things here um, that we would talk about in this situation. The first is always, um, yes, seeking out the right kind of like the right kind of medical professionals and such is where you're going to get the most direct support with something of that nature. Um, most of the time as it pertains to knees, especially there's a combination of things going on. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, getting to the bottom of that is key. Yeah. And research shows, I was looking up some research on this, that it's usually helped by strengthening of the quad and the hips, which your physical therapist is probably working with you on. But I wanted to mention that in case those weren't targeted areas, maybe um, working on those could be beneficial. Yeah. So as it goes, your three key um, flex areas, physiologically, your ankles, your knees, and your hips um, as runners. So it almost always is the case that knee pains relate most closely with weaknesses other places um, right, or tightness because other places. it's not being stabilized right um so that that would be the first consideration here now it sounds like you have 
not had to be concerned about these types of things in the past. So it's not likely with, with something like this, it's hard to know for sure. And, and, and causes are always impossible to uh, pinpoint retrospectively. Um, not always, but very, very much difficult. So in this particular instance, um, it, it sounds like the nature of the training and what you were doing is not necessarily itself like clearly you were doing something wrong. We don't see that here based on your description. But anytime you start to get like the onset of knee pain, especially if it starts with swelling, um, what that is, is you have some kind of acute aggravation in your knee. Usually it's tendons, ligatures, things of that nature. And the persistent activity then when that's happening and it's not, you're not able to lessen it because you said it was kind of progressively worsening just about each week. Um, you're, you're doing some damage to some tissues in there through that entire time. And so the fact that it's taking two months and it's not really getting better, if not potentially worse, that's not that surprising with something like knees. Um, so there's a kind of a threefold approach to this that you need to consider. The first you're already doing at least to some extent with therapy. So you, you need something to, um, to identify and diagnose the source of the tightness and weakness. What's weak, what's tight. Um, and that's where the, the physical therapist is, is the kind of person that tends to help the most with those types of things. Um, especially if you are working with a physical therapist and we say it this way, uh, because we've experienced, we've worked with many physical therapists and those who have running specific experience and running specific knowledge tend to be able to identify some of these things with a little bit more clarity than others, uh, because this is the way they spend their time and attention. So if you've seen a physical therapist who doesn't necessarily, um, hasn't been able to address some of these things, it's not a bad idea to get a second opinion and seek out somebody else potentially. Also another medical professional that maybe could order you an MRI. Yeah. Sports, sports medicine on. place. Um, right. Sports medicine place. If, if you have a doctor who's in sports med or if you can see a sports medicine specialist of some kind, um, that they're going to be able to have the conversations around, you know, when you have a, an athletic injury of these types of natures, what are the steps that you should be taking? And it often includes some additional scans to rule out some things potentially. They also have other treatment considerations that they'll do that help um, overcome some of the initial difficulties. So that's where you get people like doing things like uh, cortisone shots or is it prednisone? The it's, um, that's an NSAID. The yeah, anti-inflammatory. Like, yeah. So, yeah. So like my point is not that you need any of those things. We don't know that. But my point is that seeing the right kind of specialist, even in terms of like a, a regular practitioner who's in the sports medicine field, that tends to open more doors and options that wouldn't have been on the table otherwise. So we, we would consider, you know, you could potentially benefit from seeing, seeking out someone else in sports medicine. Anytime a runner has an injury and it it's, you haven't been able to find clarity. Um, those are some things to consider, but then further in this particular situation. Oh, did I cut you off? Oh, I was just waiting to say something. <laughs> Right. Okay. So that's why. I'm, the, yeah. Go ahead. So this is an in general thing, and I don't know your situation, Chelsea, but it sounds like you haven't hardly been able to run because you've been trying to run when there's still some pain there. And I am one, and I've that is guilty. Um, I recently actually, um, I, I've been injured for twelve weeks now, so I'm, I felt like maybe I could run, 
and I ran a couple times and I experienced aggravation and today I realized like this is not good. I just went backwards. So what I'm saying, Chelsea, is I can commiserate if it's possible that this is also the problem for you, that maybe you're trying to keep entering back in and doing too much activity where it's not allowing it to heal. Well, in any amount of activity, that was one of your questions there, Chelsea. Um, yes, to that point, any amount of activity when you're in acute distress, when you're experiencing pain, is probably worsening the issue. But with knees, it is a little tricky. So you do want to talk to somebody about it. Yeah. So then th that that brings up kind of the main perspective here. And our recommendation for you is um, it sounds like the source of the problem has either not been diagnosed or not been thoroughly addressed. Um and so that needs to be done before you, before you should even consider the idea of being active. Why, why am I experiencing the need pains? What's weak? What's tight are, are the two main questions there. And then I would suggest as you go through this process, first trying to address those things before you even try to move, try to address those in, in two to four weeks minimum period of time once you have clarity on that. Um, that means two to four weeks of treatment or therapies or uh, exercises that you already mentioned you have some of that. But um, the other side of it then, so you have that. And then you also have to consider what are the things that I was or was not doing that led to those problems. And so was it strength and mobility work that you should have been doing more of? Is there something mechanically in the way you're running that just has been exacerbated within that training cycle? Maybe because you were running a little bit more than usual, maybe because um, other circumstances and examples of that include things like you're just spending a lot of time sitting or a lot of time standing when usually you would be sitting more or standing more. Um, I know a lot of times like teachers, for instance, we work with a lot of runners who do a lot of different things. Teachers tend to find when they go from summer back into the school year, that they have knee and foot pains and problems that are not necessarily part of their normal and they have to get over that. Well, why is that? Because they go from like normal everyday life to standing on their feet all day long, walking around in the classroom or something, usually not in great shoes and all of that kind of stuff. So what it amounts to here is even after you have potentially addressed what or identified what is the source of the issue, um, then you need to further explore what are the things that I need to do to optimize my functional mechanics and um, and then attend to those things as well. Mm -hmm. And it, it there's no telling how long it's going to take. And, and that's just kind of the nature of, of a chronic thing. That's also the nature of knee pr problems in general. It can take a long time mm -hmm. uh, part of it is because it's hard depending on the tissues um, it's hard for some of those tissues to heal like the achilles for instance is one that heals very slowly many of the ligatures in your knee tendons and such also heal very slowly and so patience yeah so you're probably wondering what are some actionable steps i can take one is finding out the source of the pain or why, what like Zach just said. Another thing would be alleviating some of the tension surrounding that area. So not only are you strengthening, but you're also loosening things up around your knee. So your quad, maybe doing some myofascial release, maybe some scraping. So getting everything loose around it because it could be tugging. And then you want to avoid like hills. If you are going to do like walking and running, hills are something that aggravate knees. That could be something to do too. And then also looking for opportunities to do some stuff with strength and functional mechanics. All right.
Thanks for asking, yeah, Chelsea. Thanks, Chelsea. And I hope that I hope that things improve very, very soon for you and that you're seeing all the benefit of the stuff that you, the work that you have been doing with your physical therapist. Yeah. And keep us posted, too. Mm-hmm. We'd, yeah. we'd love to hear how things can progress here for you. Mm-hmm. All right. This next one is from an anonymous listener who's been training for a marathon and she's done a couple before and had a question about long runs and tempo runs. Is it okay to do tempo workouts within a long run or does it have to be separate? Mm. Okay. So here's the, here's the further context, the background she provided. Um, she did a marathon a couple years ago. It's been a couple years since her last one used the Hanson's plan. And that's relevant because of how some of the structures manifest. Um, but there was more running than she felt she could handle or at least time and schedule. So she had to drop the strength training to maintain the full running schedule. Now she wants to be doing the strength training. So she's running about five days a week instead of six, um, was the difference here and wanting to have time for physical therapy, which is great as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the structure is one speed. I don't know exactly what you mean by speed. It's not defined here, but I'm assuming it's some kind of like interval workout, three easy days in a long run. So that's for the fifth day with some tempo, with some tempo miles yeah. in the long run and uh running about 55 miles per week at the most which i'm assuming is sometime later in the schedule based on how you set it here Uh, so it's similar to what you've done in the past now she goes on to say i decided to shift the separate tempo run into part of the long run because she's capping the long run at three hours which i don't know exactly why either that was something that we said because we do talk about that, or that comes from some of the previous experience with some of the Hanson stuff. Because then she goes on to say, uh, Hanson's specifically limited the long run structure or schedules to 16 miles, um, which we're familiar with that. And if she ran 55 miles in a week, that would be 30% of her weekly long weekly mileage, which is another thing that she's trying to cap it off. And so then she thought if she did some tempo miles in the three-hour run, she could get a little bit more distance, which I think is sounds like one of the intents here, uh, even though it makes it a little bit more than 30% of the weekly mileage. Okay, so the first thing that we have to say is it sounds to us, and I say this gently, not, not in an accusatory fashion, but it sounds to us like you are too focused on the specific making sure it's like exactly within this or that. Um, It really doesn't matter that much whether your long run is exactly three hours or more sometimes or less sometimes. And I know the Hanson's thing does say like 16 miles and that's it. Um, The reason they talk about that is because they find that one of the things that people do wrong with long runs is over stress our metabolic systems and uh, specifically the mitochondria in our cells, which take forever to then recover and replenish. And so they find that it's too risky. Now, in the research specifically, it's actually the combination of running too long for too high of an effort that produces that effect. So they find that when you scale the effort way back, that you can get in longer volumes of running without risking some of those concerns. And, or it also has to do with how you've built up to things too. But mm-hmm. as it goes, <laughs> your focus um, is, is very precise. And we would take a step back with that and say, it's not so much a concern, whether it's exactly within some of the parameters. Now, that said, um, we also would try to address um, 
what the end goal is here like what is it that you're trying to accomplish so you you note that it sounds like you're trying to note that you want to get in another hard effort during the week in one you've got the one speed day you listed and then three easy days and so i'm assuming you wanted to have another hard effort and and then at the same time you want the distance of your long run to be longer probably because you feel like that would help you prepare better for the marathon that's a reasonable expectation and then um finding that that's the way to accomplish it so Here's the way I would say this. Uh, first, in our overall approach, we do not say that your long runs have to be easy the whole time, all the time. Um, but we do keep the long runs easy anytime we're still building up general condition, um, aerobic conditioning and some of the work around there. And so it's a phased approach. And the reason why we do that is because when you are still trying to build up your overall strength and condition, it is much more efficient to be able to recover faster from long runs. So you keep the long run as minimal of an effort as possible. So you're strengthening up, especially your legs and your energy system, um, both. And at the same time, able to come back two days later or a day later and run again without a problem. So we need to be able to do that. And in order to do that, we have to keep the long runs at a minimum effort. Now there's also comes a time in training and it doesn't happen for every runner every season as far as the ones that we coach, but certainly it's an option that's available to us. If it's clear that you're running three hour long runs easy and just feeling like it's easy breezy and everything's just going really smoothly, at that point we would potentially consider, okay, maybe we can adjust some things and have a long run be a little bit harder effort, but we wouldn't do just a couple tempo miles in the long run. We would increase the entire long runs overall effort by a, a bit. Not a lot, just a bit. So you might do like two and a half hours at a steady effort instead of at a minimal effort. And at that point, you're going to get substantially more volume and it's going to be a lot more than just two more miles in the long run. So if you're concerned about like, will I be able to run any further? Of course, the question is, well, if you can handle it first, if your system is ready for it, then there are options available to you there. Tempo miles, I'm assuming you're then assigning like marathon pace or half marathon pace or something to that that's not the way to go that's exactly what i was just thinking is i think you know as i'm hearing what zach is saying and your question here i think that that's probably part of the desire to get tempo miles in to do something at marathon uh pace and so i think that this is a different this is a different approach than hansen's that we're suggesting so that might cause some tension in the way that you're thinking right now but this is how we would answer it we answer that we think that when you're training the system to be as fit as possible the results will follow not running a certain pace for a few miles during during your long run effort so there are different approaches and that's our approach. Our approach is specifically training the system and not thinking, not thinking about a pace. So having that little bit uh, edge up of, of an effort is going to give you more stimulus, more growth, more adaptation. Yeah, so ours is better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, anyway, so the point here is in this particular instance, you want to get an extra hard effort in the week. Um, the first answer is you should do it on one of those other days. And so you do two hard efforts during the week and you still have your long run be an easy effort. And then the second point is you want to get more distance in your long run. First, establish the rest of that. And when you've been able to handle your maximum load for six to eight weeks, um, then you're ready for, and it's, and it's easy 
you're, you're not feeling like your system is barely keeping up with it, um, then you're ready to extend the effort in the long run. And then you would take one of those hard efforts out during the week and uh, specifically do that in the long run. That's an option, certainly. Yeah. Okay. Are you feeling good about that answer? <laughs> feeling good. Thank you for the question. That was a great Anonymous question. listener. Yeah, yeah. Now we have another one that's very different and very intriguing from Craig. He gives us really great questions. So thank you, mm -hmm. Craig, for that. It's in regards to weights while running. Yes. So this was one. This was actually one we wanted to get to previously, and we were not able. Um, but Craig's question here is uh, specifically about wearing weight on your body or feet. So it, his comment was, okay, so we know that high-level high runners – race in lightweight shoes, train in heavier shoes or trainers. Um, that tends to be the common approach. Um, the assumption here is they may in fact be deliberately training in shoes that are heavier for the extra weight and the strengthening that happens because of that. That's the theory, right? Uh, that Craig is offering. And then, so he said, okay, well, what about if you just wear, wear extra weight? Like you see sometimes in other sports specifically, people will train with like weight vests on uh things like that especially jumping sports by the way and so that's one of the one of his questions is do you just wear like more weight or what about like wearing ankle weights and things of that nature um and so I here's have some of those by the way oh yeah we do we have some ankle weights i don't yeah. know why i asked for them for christmas one year oh i still don't know I use why them. i use them during some exercises okay. don't worry All about right. it so <laughs> this is this is an interesting question thank you craig for asking um First, to address the, the idea of um, weighted training in general, that is not a foreign concept in the, the running industry over the years um, and something that's been tackled in a lot of different ways over time. And people have tried all sorts of shenanigans um, to varying degrees of outcomes. But um, I, I have to say that as so, insofar as like literally strapping on weights like ankle weights and such um, – while that has been tested now in many different contexts, the findings are pretty consistently insubstantial. So like you, you get some benefit strengthening your legs with literal ankle weights strapped on, um, but it's very small. And so given the, the assumption here as well, could it help me? It might be able to help you a little bit. Um, but it's also something that they don't really study those types of things longitudinally. Right. So they don't really know if you did that for like years, what the difference would be. Uh, no one can point to that. So I, I, there could be something to it. However, there's a trade-off and this is the, where we go with these types of things in general. There's a trade-off with, um, if you're talking about like heavier weight shoes or even strapping on ankle weights, that is more traumatic to your body. Um, and so there tends to be uh, greater recovery need with something like that. Also, you can't necessarily you, – you gain in terms of musculoskeletal strength, but you lose in terms of energy system conditioning because you cannot necessarily exert the same sustained high efforts with weighted shoes than you could without weighted shoes. Because your muscles will fatigue. Your muscles your are fatiguing faster, right? Yeah. So like as, pushing a jogger. Exactly. Yeah, true. Uh, but as a result, that's where the longitudinal piece comes in. Well, they haven't really studied that for like if you did it for years and then of course you would could be conditioned to it and it may have some kind of benefit that's un 
let's all just nod to the psychological benefit of putting on race shoes shoes that are lighter than your trainers. Like so, that there yeah. is something about that when you put on a pair of racing shoes and they feel light and they feel quick. There, there is definitely an advantage. Um, it, both physically and psychologically. Now, here's the point, though, and this is what gets fascinating. And if you start looking into current examinations of the topic, it's very different now than it was seven years ago. And why did I say seven? Because that's when Nike put out the first super shoes. Changed everything about this perspective. Prior to Nike's super shoes, racing shoes on principle were always as light as possible and therefore as thin and insubstantial as possible across the board. It was just always the case. And so as a consequence, they were very destructive to your musculoskeletal system. So people wore them as rarely as possible within reason, especially even the professional runners. They wouldn't really train in shoes like that except for in rare instances in order to strengthen their legs to handle it for the races themselves. Now everything's different because the super lightweight racing shoes that are also massive, um, they're not just lighter weight and, you know, feel faster on your feet for that reason, but they also have higher energy return. Therefore you recover faster from an effort with them and can put out a higher degree of effort for less musculoskeletal exertion, which means the whole game is shifting. The professionals right now are spending way more time in racing shoes than they ever did before. As a matter of fact, you're going to see this if you start looking into um, like the Nike teams, for instance, and stuff like they train a high percentage of their regular training is in the super shoes now. Why is it workouts? Yeah, workouts, long runs. Sometimes it kind of depends on the group, but you start looking into it and they're actually doing a lot of running, potentially in some instances, up to half of the running in a week is in super shoes. Um, because the opposite now is happening where you can run as, as the coaches have been talking about lately, Dathan among them, um, you can run more at a higher percent of your maximum possible effort and still recover well in those shoes. And so this now gets into what's more important, musculoskeletal strength or energy system efficiency, energy system condition, and some of those things. And of course, the answer is both, but we're seeing a trend now toward overemphasizing compared to the past. It definitely depends on what you're doing. If you're running, if you're running a 1500 meter run on the track, the musculoskeletal needs are not going to be as demanding as if you're doing a 50k on the road (laughs) true but here's the other piece in the puzzle that's important to remember is that at the professional level they're also doing other things for musculoskeletal strength like a large amount of other things Hmm. and don't necessarily the the energy system piece as has always been the most limiting factor for the professional athlete who has an unlimited amount of time and can do as much as they want because you just simply cannot run all day long you can't do it there's a maximum amount of running you can do before you're basically going to hurt yourself. But they can they can go out and do all sorts of other strength workouts in varying capacities without risking injury as well. And so they've always had the option of being able to do more for musculoskeletal strength than what they do in the run itself. For the rest of us, we don't have unlimited time and we find the need to spend most of our training time running to maximize that. And so then we're also using that running time for the musculoskeletal strengthening as well, because it's really not happening for most of us in other contexts, which means 
we don't want to all be training in super shoes all the time because we need some of the benefit of a heavier shoe that's harder for our body to move around to increase our leg strength, for instance. So what it comes down to is ultimately every scenario is going to include, you have the regular training shoes that tend to be a little bit heavier. You have the racing shoes that tend to be a little bit lighter for most people. Um, plenty of runners race in the same shoes they train in as it goes. But, um, does that mean that it would be good to add extra weight in training? I would simply say it's, it's inefficient. Um, it's not necessarily adding something substantial or significant to your overall training. Um, and it comes with a lot of risk. Yeah, there's risk there for sure. And also if you think about it, it has to be some, a place that it's not going to change your mechanics too. So I guess your shoe for lifting, if it's a very minimal amount, it still could be good. But like, if you're putting it like on your wrists, wrist, for example, like I, I just, I, I'm thinking about how things could potentially change how you run. Well, and keep in mind the studies where they put runners in like weighted vests and stuff, they found almost no substantial difference with like an extra five, even I think they went up to like 10 pounds, an extra five or 10 pounds on a vest almost no difference. But if you put those five or 10 pounds on your feet, it's a huge difference. Like, as you might guess, five pounds on each foot dangerous. is a lot of extra be, weight. Yeah. So it, it does, it does depend on where it is. Don't wear the weight or don't try to weight yourself on your torso because, um, that, that doesn't seem to make much of a difference in terms of value and just, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable as it goes. If you're going to add weight to your feet, then we just suggest wearing heavier shoes like have a have a have a training shoe that's a little bit lighter that you use for like faster things and have a training shoe that's a little bit sturdier heftier or something um for other things and then you right there you have kind of the that's the extent of it yeah, i wouldn't do more the psychological than that. benefit when you put on your racing shoes that is always fun it is fun very enjoyable well, we'll have more questions answered next month, so get in your questions. Do that. And let's get on to the world of running. Kicking off the world of running with some A to Z runners who ran this past week and weekend, CJ was second in the Michigan Mile, which is part of the Crim race, and he ran a mile PR substantial one 419 speedy fast fast running nice job cj aaron was third overall at the gravel world's 50k a week after doing a different 50k that she also placed well in so nice job aaron racing all over the world and dan first in his age group at the north country trail half marathon as well mm -hmm. At Millennium Meadows, Alyssa ran a half marathon PR, which is super exciting. Yeah. And Michelle ran a 5K and a half marathon this past weekend. Doing it all. Mm -hmm. Mary ran a strong 10K and was second in her age group. And Craig, wrapping up the weekend for us, ran the Sioux Falls Marathon as well. Nice lots work, Lots of great everyone. racing, yeah. Lots of great racing. Speaking of lots of great racing, the World Championships wrapped up. And I say wrapped up, but the last time we were sharing things with you, there had only been like two days so far yeah. of competition. And so there's six more-ish mm -hmm. here to share with you. And I should mention those were the 10Ks, so those were really exciting races. Go back and listen if you haven't caught up on that news. But we're going to kick things off with the women's 1500-meter run. 
Oh, what a way to start. I know. Just start with <laughs> the, the best. best event. We're, we're going to go in order of okay. the distance events. The 1500 was first on this docket. The race was predictable, okay. but <laughs> it was still very exciting. I mean, it what what ends up happening in a situation like this with the likes of Faith Kipyegon doing what she did this year, breaking all the world records and winning everything, um, is everyone's just going to say, well, she's just going to win. So let's just wait and see how she does it. And then we'll try to pick up the scraps. And that's exactly what everyone did. Yeah. They just waited for Faith Kipyegon to do something. And then they fell in line behind her. And they let her control the race, which I was a little surprised because I thought, you know what? Maybe someone's going to try a crazy tactic, pull out all the stops, start going hard early or something just to you know, see if they could somehow change the will of Faith Kipiegon for the race. But nope. There weren't really a lot of risk-taking <laughs> ventures in the championships this year. But um, it was still exciting. Yeah, yeah. So everyone just sat behind her and she didn't have to pass anyone like she normally does in order to pull out her amazing kick that she has. So instead, we just got to see her really stretch it out there at the end, which was cool to see. She sealed the deal with a 56-second final lap. That's 56 seconds for 400 meters. 56 seconds. For those of you taking notes. <laughs> and that's fast. Um, but what's most significant is not just that she won a gold medal, because that happens to be something she's doing fairly regularly these days. Um, this marks her third world championships gold in the 1500, now becoming the only woman to win three gold medals in that same event. So that's a, that's a new first. She's got three world records this season. Now she's the first woman to ever win three golds in the 1500, which is incredible. But also they're consecutive, which makes it that much more incredible. She's just winning. Actually, no, now that I say that, are they consecutive? You wrote three golds, two silvers. Nineteen, twenty nineteen. Did Sifan Hassan beat her in twenty nineteen? I don't remember. All right. No, because I think she was undefeated since twenty sixteen. All right? I know is Sifan Hassan is the only one to beat her. In the or World she had only been beat while. once since twenty sixteen. Yeah, think that's that was what, that, that was, was the stat, Hassan. right? Okay. Well, whatever the year may be, she's got three golds. Yeah. She also has two silvers, so she's got five fifteen hundred meter World Championships medals. That doesn't include her Olympic medals. So that's that's incredible. So I said that she stretched it out there in the end, but there's actually someone on her heels. One oh, yeah. second I mean, behind her. She didn't but bury Kate them. But Kipiangon was in control of this race. Yes. It was not like a sprint for the finish where you didn't know who was going to win. That kind of thing. No, she was in front the whole time and no one no one challenged her. But Deribe Welteji of Ethiopia was close behind. She's about a second behind her. And a very strong finish on her part as well, especially given that she outkicked Sifan Hassan. Yeah, that's where who the race finished was. Third, and Sifan mm -hmm. Hassan is known for her kick. Yeah, much like Kipiegon. So Hassan finished third. That's the bronze medal after that terrible fall in the ten thousand meters. If you didn't recall, yeah. or you didn't hear us talk about that previously, um, that was brutal. Right, right before the finish line, on her way to try to win the gold medal, fell. So Hassan got a little bit of redemption here. Uh, on en route to her triple event. Remember, she did the 10,000, 1,500, and 5,000 here. So in the 1,500, she ended up meddling with a bronze. It was a tight finish, and she had to work for it because not only did Welteji contest her, but Ireland's Chiara McGeehan was right hot on their heels as well in a narrow fourth-place finish for a new Irish national record in 356 <laughs> 
point six one. It wasn't a very old record. She recently yes her own record got that record that, that this means season. this is just a record-setting season for mcgeehan as yeah, well yeah. this year absolutely incredible race the men's 3000 meter steeplechase had a rivalry that everyone was looking forward to seeing unfold and that was the rivalry between lamecha germa and sufayn albacali and there you have it uh germa being the world record holder in the event and Elbakali being the one who always wins. <laughs> Between the two, it's kind of, I imagine Germa must just be terribly frustrated yeah. by the, these oh, stats. Oh, sure. Yeah. The fact that he almost always gets second to Elbakali has. Yeah. Well, he's trying to break that pattern here, and he certainly gave a valiant effort. So, what ends up happening in the 3000 steeple here was that it was more or less uneventful for the first lap and a half or so. Everyone was just kind of chilling out. But then Kenya's Leonard Bett, knowing that the likes of Girma and Elbakali are in the race, Elbakali's got this mad kick, and Girma has the world record. So, Bett thinks, I'm going to take control, and I'm going to do my thing. And he goes to the front, and he starts putting, he gets spicy. Heat. Yeah. Putting some heat into the race. Which in is separation, did they let them go? If I'm no, wrong, no they I don't okay. think so. No, no, no. They they went with them. The whole field went with them. Um, but what he did is he strung it all out. And at the time when he went, and I think this is a savvy move anytime someone does this, but Girma and Elbakali were both way in the back. Like they were both just kind of chilling in the back of the race. And so Bet takes off. And it takes a little bit for them to catch up to respond fully to the move. That's never a bad strategy. Uh, but he didn't commit so much to it that it was like try to just floor it and see if they could catch him and so as such they did catch up to him pretty easily um but he he made them he made them doubt and so they did have to make some changes to their current positioning and that was that was good because it turned it into uh much more of a race then bet takes off and elbakali and girma go work their way up to him and then countrymen kenya country kenyan countrymen abraham kibiwat and simon coach both move up as well and so those five end up basically creating the race mm -hmm. at that point Gednet Wale of Ethiopia was close as well but he was he was losing contact it, it was clear that he was having to work harder than the rest of them to keep that and maintain it and he fell off fairly quickly so it was probably around a mile in which in the 3000 meter steeplechase is basically halfway and and it was abundantly clear that those five were likely to be the ones to contest it but only a lap later they even the five started stringing out a bit and Girma took the lead and started applying even more pressure so now you have the world record holder with a thousand meters to go that's two and a half laps and he's starting to turn it up and you can tell that his strategy now is clear he doesn't want to have to deal with El Bacali's kick no and plus like he's run a faster steeplechase oh, yeah. so that makes sense to me it makes sense that he's going to be the one to go between the two of them yeah, although his his world record is only a handful of seconds faster than Elbakali's time this year I'm as well. I'm just saying, so it's, both it's, of them it's a have move run that, that I think yeah. would have been even in even in hindsight. You know, it's like I don't think it was a bad move. I think it is the move you have to do in that position if you're Girma. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it did not work. <laughs> so it didn't, no. he definitely put the heat on, but Elbakali just matched him, just ran with him. And there were some moments where it was like, oh, is Elbakali losing touch a little bit? No, no, he really wasn't. So two things became clear in the late stages, last couple laps of the race. First, Elbakali was more comfortable over the barriers. Every time they had to jump, Girma lost a little bit of space or time on Bakali. Um, and then 
when they got into the last 200 meters, El Bacali goes up next to Girma, and they actually, there's a jump right before 200 meters to go. They hit that jump, and as soon as they landed after the jump, El Bacali was in front, and all that happened in that moment was just the jump over the barrier. Yeah. So he was just, he was right there, ready to go. Girma was losing steam, and El Bacali just ran away from him with 200 meters left. Yeah, it's not just the distance of getting over the jump it is a momentum thing and it's really important to maintain the momentum especially when you're getting tired especially when you're closing so quickly so the barriers become increasingly important the higher level of steeplechase that you get that's the truth so it ends up being the rivalry <laughs> Happened the same way it always does. El Bacali wins the gold. Girma second. That's his third straight silver medal in the world championships. Two of them to El Bacali. One to Conceslos Capruto back in the day. But for Girma, that's rock solid consistency. He would love. He to, wants he to. He would win. love to win one of these <laughs> he one wants day. To win. He's already got the world record. What else does he need to do? So Girma ends up uh, losing to Bacali again. But Kibiwat Abraham Kibiwat of Kenya finishes third for another Kenyan bronze medal. And I say that because Kenya has been on the medal stand in the steeplechase very nearly every single year in the modern era. And so Kibi Watts kind of showing up big for the cl the crew in this instance and uh, marks then uh, his first medal in the event. More medals and more medals, more medals. We go on to the men's 1500 meter run that was another highly anticipated event. Very much so, because Jakob Britson, the king of the event, Is outside of the World Championships, <laughs> he's not defending the title. If you recall last year, he was outkicked by uh, Jake Whiteman of Great Britain. But Jake Whiteman's not in the field. He's, I, I think Injured. he's hurt. Yeah. yeah. So he was not really competing at all this season. But he was due there. To injury. I heard he was doing interviews and stuff. Okay, oh, he was right. there with a media pass. Oh, yeah. very nice. That's a fun way to do it. Well, Ingebrigtsen has been very quiet lately, and everyone was talking about, like, what's, something's got to be up. He didn't show up for the last Diamond League that everyone thought he would be there, and, and so something seems to be up. Uh, and sure enough, he did not look himself in the rounds leading up to the, the finals. But you can't ever count him out. The guy knows how to race a 1500, and so all eyes were certainly on him still in the event. And what ended up being is Kenya's Abel Kipsang, who is no stranger to running fast 1500s, wanted the race to be fast. I, I No doubt that he felt his best chances were a fast race as fast as possible. Also, since Ingebrigtsen's notorious for starting in the very back of the race and staying back there as long as he comfortably can, then Kipsang took off early, just right away. And uh, you can tell that Ingebrigtsen um, was not interested in risking that because he moved up pretty quickly instead of waiting. And after about the first lap, shortly after that, he actually moved around Kipsang and applied even more pressure to the pace. So then it was kind of like, well, it was a good strategy, kept saying, but Ingebrigtsen wants, wants it with interest. So uh, unfortunately um, for Ingebrigtsen, Kipsang wasn't to be outdone, and he applied more pressure, and it kind of was this little back-and-forth thing, which is always exciting. Um, but then Ingebrigtsen pushes ahead and continues to hold that lead until they get to the last 500 meters or so. He 
adds another injection of speed, which is a bold spot to move. It's now a little bit earlier than the classic, you know, final lap sprint. And lo and behold, Great Britain's Josh Kerr shows up out of nowhere and just latches on to Ingebrigtsen, like, like his shadow. So they, they, two of them start moving away from the group a little bit. They kind of string them out, and the group, the group goes with them, but not quite as responsive. It was almost like, I have to say, I'm watching this, and it's almost like Josh Kerr was waiting for that move. Like he knew it was coming mm -hmm. because as soon as it happened, he was there. He countered almost as if he was actually making the move himself and Ingebrigtsen just did it at the same time. But as it goes, it becomes deja vu. Josh Kerr is shadowing Ingebrigtsen around the curve. They've got about 200 meters to go. And just like Jake Whiteman last year, the Brit this year, Kerr, comes around him and he floors it to a degree that I did not think was possible in the last 200 off of the kind of speed they were already running. That gear change was amazing mm -hmm. to watch and Ingebrigtsen could not deal with it he had he had no response he stayed with him but he couldn't overtake him and yeah. Josh Kerr hands Ingebrigtsen his second straight loss at the world championships in the 1500 in a miraculous final kick and not only that but Ingebrigtsen very nearly got nabbed at the line by countryman Narve Nordas yeah. as well who finished with the bronze medal just a hair behind Ingebrigtsen, coming yeah. on strong himself. Yeah, Josh Kerr in a post-race interview was talking about how he did plan for these scenarios and that he watched a lot of Ingebrigtsen tape. Well, it's not real tape anymore, right? But he was watching yeah. a lot of Ingebrigtsen racing and studying it and playing out these scenarios, figuring out how he can become stronger in order to beat Ingebrigtsen in strategy so he yep. did just that he imagined this exact scenario he said and so he you went know for what it. <laughs> and and it's obvious that he had prepared for that scenario yeah, yeah he went for it and and here's what it becomes Ingebrigtsen has shown weakness um he he lost the world championships last summer and what josh kerr did is he essentially figured out if i can run the race that gives me a better opportunity for a faster kick in the end I can beat him. And Josh Kerr actually said at one point, he's like, I know that I have a better kick than Ingebrigtsen. I know that. But I have to be able to race in such a way that I can use it that way. Because this is what it becomes. Every miler thinks they have the fastest kick, right? Yes. But almost none of them position themselves to be able to use their best possible kick in the best possible moment. This is how Matthew Senschwitz won the 2016 Olympic 1500. He was not the fastest guy in that field by any stretch but he was in the exact right place to start his kick at the exact right moment to win the race and that's what josh kerr just did mm -hmm. it was really something a, a work of art in terms of racing execution and you know it, there's lots to be said maybe ingebrigtsen was under the weather he kept talking about how he was actually yeah. dealing with a an illness virus, yeah. as well um and that may be the case but he was basically running at his finest still. I mean, they ran 329, which is blazing fast for a world championships final. Um, and not only that, but Ingebrigtsen's kick was great. It wasn't bad. Josh Kerr was just amazing. So would that have happened the same way if Ingebrigtsen had or had not been dealing with some kind of virus? I don't know. He certainly thinks he would have had a little bit more. But uh, either way, this was the day, and Josh Kerr won it. Yep. USA had a good showing as well, and I should at least mention Yard Nagoose was there. He was he was doing the right kinds of things at 
the wrong moments in the race. Um, he just, he, I, the way I said it was we were watching, I was like, he's, he's not, not terrible, but he certainly is not making good choices <laughs> throughout this race. Well, I think it was a tough one. I think that there's a lot of, and I think the 1500 and the 800 have a lot of this, but there's too much movement and there's a lot of wasted energy moving in different positions in the 1500 and the 800. And I think he did waste some energy in this race. That may well be the case. But, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes you can't fig- you can't avoid certain things. Like you just make in the split second, you make a decision and you get caught. You yeah, know, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of things, and it's it's hard to know. Um, it's just kind of unlucky sometimes too. Yeah, well, what it, what it is is Yard Nagus was handed his worst finish of the season. You know, certainly in the Diamond League circuit, uh, a couple of top three finishes. He ended up fifth here, but it's his first World Championship final. Yeah. You know, he's a rookie, and he kind of raced like one, but you can forgive that once. And then... Stop it. And then back in seventh, Cole Hawker, who has been coming out of... You know, it's a slow start season, coming out of injury... Uh, surgery, maybe? What what was his... I can't remember what his injury was, but whatever the case may be, he certainly has not been, like, at peak form until this moment where he ran a personal best in a world championship final, which is hard to do. For 330.7, finished seventh place. Yeah, we didn't say Yard Nagus was fifth place. I did say that. You did? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, missed, I missed that you said that. And then we got to at least mention the Netherlands dark horse teenager, Niels Larsen. Just, uh, he's... Laros, he's, yeah. Sorry, thank you, Laros. He's, he's one to watch. Um, at 17, 18 years old, he's got... Uh, I can't remember if he's 17 or 18 now. Um, but... He's got the Netherlands national record, and he just set it again in this race to run 321. How many kids at that age are running 321? 331. I'm not reading very well at the moment. (laughs) And and finishes 10th place in a world championship finals. So keep your eyes on Leros because he's going to be exciting. All right, moving on to the men's 800. Wow. As I mentioned, the 800 and the 1500 can have a lot of jostling. Well, the 800 had a ton of jostling for the men. It was really crazy in there. And there were tons of, it was jostling, bumping, kind of like pushing, full on arms. (laughs) Yeah, it was just really unfriendly. It was a very unfriendly event. (laughs) Including a disqualification from Algeria's Jamal Sajati. So what it ends up being is with a lap to go, and it was not a fast first lap, with a lap to go, Canada's Marco Arap is in last place, which is an unfamiliar place for him. This guy likes to be in the front and lead 800-meter races. Um, you've got Kenya's youngster, Emmanuel Wanyani, up in front doing some good work. And you know, the, as a teenage sensation in the event, um, certainly has accomplished much already. But then what it becomes is... This like massive change of the guard in the last lap. Just ev- everything's going. People are moving and people are falling and fading and everything's changing. And you just have no idea what's going to happen. So Marco Arap makes his move with 300 meters to go, which is like the worst moment to move in the 800 because you're always going to pay for that. Like there's just no way that you can hold a move for 300 meters in an 800 or at least – until don't now. say no way. Yeah. <laughs> well, because that's I'm watching the race, and I said aloud to Andy and and those with us, um, I said, "Oh, he's not going to hold that. They, they're going to swallow him up." And they didn't. And he did hold it. And the best explanation for that is simply 
that he was able to keep enough of a gap that nobody behind him had they felt like they could beat him. So he just he just stayed in front of them enough. And so Emmanuel Wanyanyi from Kenya was the best of the rest, finished second, um, nearly caught Arap. With 100 to go, it looked like he wouldn't have a chance. But then he actually started gaining a little bit more on him in the last 50 meters or so, but just not not quite enough real estate. Finished second. And then another, I would say another upset was Great Britain's Ben Patterson for bronze. Not to suggest that Great Britain wouldn't have meddled here because they have a wealth of great middle distance runners right now. Um, but Patterson was just not, he, he was not in the predictions for most, um, in large part because the Algerians, both Mula and Sajadi were high favorites to medal in this event. Sajadi ends up disqualified and Mula finishes way back, just got swallowed up in the last hundred meters or so. So a very interesting event. Yeah. I kind of like it when things get mixed up a little bit. Well, now on to the women's marathon, which was also interesting in different ways because Zach had said there wasn't a lot of risk taking until until we get into some of these later uh, events here because there was some risk taking in the women's marathon. There was a breakaway by USA's very own Susanna Sullivan. That was not risk taking. That's not that doesn't count. I think it was because she was going in knowing that she needs to do what she needs to do and going out slow would not enhance her chances of being in the mix. However, she did end up having a pretty rough day. She underestimated the heat is what happened there. You know, I, I don't know. I didn't see any kind of reports of exactly what, what went wrong with her, but I would anticipate that it could have had something to do with that or if there was like a muscular thing that was going on. But anyway, it started to string out, but the race wasn't over yet. When was that, Zach? I think you wrote that. You wrote that. <laughs> oh. But it was... When did it start stringing out? It, it was... The, it, there were starting to become separations in the last... It was last 20K or so, second half. Um, but it really didn't become like a who's oh, going right. to do something here until about... 10k to go 12k to go at the 30k mark that's when things started heating up specifically with the bold push from the four ethiopians yes there were four ethiopians in the race because defending champ gatitam gabrisalesi uh, gets the buy so four ethiopians in the race and together they surge hard with about 10k to go and drop the rest of the field and suddenly it becomes a question of, is Ethiopia going to sweep one through four with this just bold move strategy here in the late race? And for a while there, it looked like it. They were they were creating some serious separation. Mm -hmm. And then it all fell apart. Yeah. And it was interesting because it looked like there was so much space. It didn't look like people could change. Yeah. But in the marathon, the you can go from running like. 10 seconds a mile faster than people to like 40 seconds a mile slower than them. That, yeah, You can make right. up a lot of time in the last few miles of this race. And that's exactly what ends up happening. So the first signs of weakness in the Ethiopian pack was suddenly Sihei Gamechu just dropped out. She wasn't, yeah. she didn't even start slowing down first. She did a little bit for a moment and then just stepped off the course. And yeah. I was like, okay, she's done. Yeah, it was surprising. She looked to be grabbing her side, probably cramps of some sort is, mm -hmm. is the best guess without seeing anything definitive. But it suddenly, it went from a pack of four to three. Okay, mm -hmm. but those three still looked great until they didn't. Until they... 
And it was actually defending champ, Gebra Selassie, who first started to fade. And she just immediately lost contact. And this is how it happens in the marathon. Um, as as people are starting to fade, they don't tend to go from, like, I'm with you to I'm slightly behind you and I'm slightly behind you. They tend to just immediately lose contact. And, and there's, a, like, an abrupt slowdown. And then usually there's a bit of a rally that happens where they kind of pick it back up a touch. But that's kind of what it looked like. Gebra yeah. Selassie just suddenly wasn't with them anymore. Mm-hmm. But it was not long after that that Yelimzerf Yahuala also started to fade, but she started to fade even harder. And I could see that coming. In in the marathon, you can kind of see it coming sometimes because the form starts to really give you the clue. And in Yahuala's case, she was moving side to side like her head was moving a lot and so you could tell that she was hurting and she was struggling to keep herself in it and she even looked like she was dizzy Mm. she did this thing with her arms that made it look like she that was very late in the race but yeah was dizzy yeah like for a moment there looked like she was just gonna go down yeah but she didn't she didn't somehow somehow well so what's what ends up happening at this point now you've got world-class marathoners behind you that are chasing you down and the likes of rosemary wanjiru from kenya who's the world leader this season currently you've got lona salpeter from israel who is no stranger to high finishes in world-class events and then a few other unexpected which we'll come back to but the chase pack is not that far behind and that's the way these things go is it looks like you have an eternal amount of space and yet as soon as you start struggling they seem to be just chewing up the distance and that's what that's what starts to happen yahuala fading hard gabra celeste actually passes her again pretty soon and then yahuala is going just keeps going backwards and gabra celeste starts to hold so she's not losing ground anymore she's not going to gain on amani barisu shankule who is now charging ahead of everyone else she's the only one who continues to look strong at that yeah. point um and just just punishing the field she was the second place finisher in the boston marathon this year so shankule just go runs away with it she ends up getting the gold completely uncontested and gabra celesi now is like doing whatever she can to just try to hold on because she knows that that chase pack's coming yeah huala gets swallowed up sal peter goes by her and then in fact it was moroccan i gotta scroll down and get it fatima gardati who mm. goes by her as well and that's where the surprises start because who is this Gardati is the first question. Where did she come from? And wait a second. She actually looks really good. Like everyone else looks like they're struggling, even the ones that are still moving forward. But Gardati looks like like she's accelerating at this point. So now it starts to become dangerous. Sal Peter looks like she's going to take a medal position. Gardati blows past her. And then Gardati looks like she might have the chance of even potentially catching Gebra Selesi. But she ran out of time and space. If she had more distance left in that race, oh, she, she would have caught sure. her. Uh-huh. So Gebra Selassie ends up taking silver after her win last year. So a strong return, which is always tough in the marathon. And Gardati becomes the first Moroccan woman to win a marathon medal in the World Championships for bronze. I love those kinds of stories. And Selpeter was fourth. Which is not uncommon for her <laughs> well tough. she she would have been in if in that chase gardati was able to you know claim that bronze but if she wasn't there Selpeter peter would have passed all of 
yeah was, she know, was she, moving she up she would have gotten that yeah so yeah and it should we should note the top american finisher in ninth place was lindsey flanagan and she she was coming on mm -hmm. strong in the late stages of a very hot race yeah, and kira damato was top 20 as well solid yep women's 5000 back to the track it was slow <laughs> it, it's true it and was. I understand the why. whole race was the, slow. Well, and the reason for this, there's a couple reasons. One is it's very hot and typically races that are very hot. There's a lot of conservation happening early. People want to conserve energy. And and well, most of the women in the race had already run another event. That was the second thing. Yep, oh, sorry. That was yeah, about, I know you were yeah, about to say yeah, that. Yeah, the, the second thing is that a lot of them have already run races. So the ones who were really... Uh, hoping that it was going to be slow, got their wish. Um, and the ones who shouldn't have let it be slow made bad choices. And so then what ends up happening is you get to a situation where with one lap to go, this is a 5,000 meter, right? So for 11 and a half laps, no one does anything. And with one lap to go, there are 14 women of 16. So like only two of them in the whole race were not still just in a giant clump. And that's a bad place to be for everyone except for the likes of Faith Kipiegon and a few of her compatriots. So what ends up being the case, right? Of course, everyone's just looking at Faith Kipiegon again, which you should never do in general, but you especially shouldn't do in a 5,000 meter when she's got the blazingest kick on the planet. So here's what happens with 400 to go. Not only is it, it was a slow up to that point, but they still let her lead. So she has the best position now with a lap to go because she's in the front and doesn't have to pass anyone and can just run the rail the shortest possible distance. And she does exactly that. Faith Kipiegon starts accelerating. Everyone else tries to go with her. And many can for a while until they can't anymore. And what's amazing here, what is the most exceptional thing about this last lap is Faith Kipiegon wasn't even the only runner to run 56 seconds for the final lap. So she did it once already in this championships. Does, she does it again here, but Sifan Hassan finishes for a silver medal in a 56 second last lap. She was barely behind Kip Yegan. Like you start to wonder at that point, if Hassan had not run as many events as she did in this championships, would she have just won that race? Cause there's a very real chance she would have, but only a touch behind her is Kenya's Beatrice Chibet, who also runs a 56-second last lap. She just had more ground to make up than the other two because she was farther back in that clump when they started the kick. So Chibet finishes third to make a Kenya 1-3. And then, in fact, it ends up being Kenya 4 as well. Margaret Kemboy finishes fourth for Kenya. And just an astounding insane lap. Just trying to watch everyone and figure out who's actually going to finish where. You couldn't keep up with it. There's just so much going on. Apparently, that's what it takes now. You have to run, run 56 seconds. There was a time when <laughs> if a person was even capable of that, that person would win every race. Now, granted, Kip Yegon still wins every race, but she's not the only one doing that. That's amazing. So here's, here's what we have to say. At least this is my take. Faith Kip Yegon broke three world records this season in three different events. Okay. Five, 1,500 mile 5,000 three separate world records in one season and then won two gold medals in the world championships which by the way no other woman has won gold in both the 1500 and the 5,000 in their entire careers and she did it in one meet 
you have to say after a season like this that hands down Kip Yegan just had the most undisputed incredibly most undisputedly incredible the the best season of running for any distance runner ever that is my claim right there nobody's ever rivaled that in a single season absolutely incredible yeah absolutely incredible huh and for those that didn't hear all the drama with Stefan Hassan the 10,000 she fell she did complete the triple and she did earn two medals. She still medaled in two out of three events. <laughs> and, she and, would have medaled in all three if she hadn't fallen in the 10,000. And in less than six weeks, she'll be running the Chicago Marathon. Yes, <laughs> a, a couple months after winning the London Marathon. So this begs the question, is Sifan Hassan a robot? <laughs> is it possible she's not actually flesh and blood? Well, actually, we know the answer to that because she was bleeding after that yeah, fall in the yeah, track. She, she proved that. She so proved she that is, in fact, flesh and blood. blood. Mm -hmm. But you got to wonder. It's amazing. What it's quite incredible. What composition makes a human capable of being what she I is? I can't wait to see how she yeah. continues to run in the marathon. Yeah. How she gonna, how, in the post-race interview, she was talking about breaking the 5,000 world record next year. She's like, yeah, a bunch of us are going to go for it. We're going to run under 14 minutes. I'm like, yeah, you probably will. All right. <laughs> well, there's more to come still because the men's marathon then on the final morning of the championship series. Mm -hmm. Similarly to the women's marathon, there was an early breakaway. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Sarod Bat-Ochir led around 10K and... For him, you had to wonder what the strategy was too. Was he, was he want? You know that might be like his best shot. Maybe he wanted. It was really slow, so he wanted to just do his own thing, perhaps. But he is a five-time Olympian. Okay. From Mongolia, so he has a lot of experience. So it's not lack of experience, but he did end up dropping out, grabbing his hamstring, and looking to be in a lot of pain. Yeah, I mean, he and half the field. Yeah. Did not finish that race. Yeah, yeah. That says something about the day. Right. But he it was after he got swallowed. So I don't know when that hamstring thing happened. It looked kind of all of a sudden. But the chase pack was exchanging leads during that time. And very regularly, even after they had passed Bet Ochir, Timothy Kiplagat would surge at most of the aid stations. And it looked like something was happening <laughs> and everyone would get excited. But then the, it down. would regroup. It's just because he wanted to stay out of trouble at the aid stations, which is not a bad idea. It could be it, but it also is a strategy for breaking off some people. Okay. Because in the marathon, the rule is not to try to run away from the pack early, mid-race. You want to do that at the end of the race, certainly. But the rule in the marathon is when they're doing these surges and things like that, the intent is to winnow the field. So there are fewer people contending for those final hmm. spots. Because the more people you can break away early, the more likely you, you can finish high in the end. So there's always these these approaches with the marathon in terms of like how these racers are trying to do that, whether it's successful or not, or worth the energy expenditure or not. But that tends to be something you see a fair bit at championship races. In that big, humongous men's group, USA's Alcana Kibet was in that group for much of the race, but he would later end up dropping. But he did try to stay connected in that big group for a long time. And announcers told us, although we didn't see him, that USA's <laughs> Zach Panning, shout out because he's in Michigan, so that's pretty awesome. He was in 40th position at around like 53 minutes. Okay. 
there's still a huge pack. Which, why is that relevant? Because <laughs> I'm going to tell you yes. what he ended up doing in the end. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Go ahead. There's Keep still going. a huge pack at an hour and it broke apart a bit at an hour and 10. Their first real move was at 112 by Johannes uh, Cipinelli of Italy. Cipinelli. Okay. The Italian making the move. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And then at 115, Zach Panning was at 33rd. Okay. He's moving I'm, up. I'm, I'm All right. I see the story you're doing. telling. Yeah. Yeah. And around 130, there were only three up front Victor Kiplingat of Uganda and the Ethiopians Lul Gabar Selassie and Timurat Tola. Ah, defending champ Timurat Tola. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's interesting because we're talking at 112 moves by the Italian and 18 minutes later it's a three-man race mm -hmm. that tells you that tells you kind of how these things unfold it happens quick and it, it happen generally quick. happens decisively mm -hmm. and around that time Stephen Kissa of Uganda fell oh and then there was another fall Maru Tafiri of Israel he went down at a water station it actually oh. looked like he slipped because of all the water Probably from the sponges on, yeah, and everything. Because everyone was like, yeah. you know, using their sponges and it was wet. And those super shoes have no traction on the bottom of them. They're kind of scary that way. They're not great in the rain either. Yeah, true. But he got right back up and in the chase pack. Kissa ends up catching the chase pack, but doesn't group up. He keeps going. Oh, just keeps on <laughs> going. Just keeps okay. on going. <laughs> And then Tola dropped um, off the group of three. So then it ended up just Kiplingat and Geber, Geber Selassie. Yeah. And this is kind of interesting because at this point, it's like, it's just such an interesting background noise. But you can hear the opera music is beginning. And it the was just. Opera? Yes. Like. Did anyone else notice that? Like singing opera? Yes. It was beautiful opera music. Why? And I'm bringing this up because I just thought it was interesting. It kind of like sets the stage for the environment that these people were racing in. Okay. And I do All wonder right. if opera, the majestic kind, would be motivating to you. No. Listener. No. I think it would. I'm making a prediction. It might make Every like teary, single you know? person listening right now does not want to listen to opera in the final half hour of a marathon. I don't know. I think it's kind of prove me wrong. <laughs> like I'm doing something big and okay. amazing. All right. And opera you is can big say and that. amazing. You are welcome to say those words. Okay. Well, what happened next? Kiplinga asserted his position and made his biggest move breaking away. There was a long bridge with a slight downhill and he used that to his advantage, which Kara Goucher called. She said, I think someone's going to make a move on the bridge and the slight downhill. Okay. All right. And she called it and that happened. And then at 40 K, Panning was in 18th position. So this is really Zach Panning just moving on yeah. up. Yeah. All and right. This is really close to the end now. Yeah, 2K, in fact, right. from the end. Ugandan ended up winning. Okay. Victor Kaplanga. He's the first one, first Ugandan to win since 2013. All right. Which is a big deal. And Tafiri came back after his fall, just trudging and like he never he never settled he just kept accelerating once he got back up from the fall he kept pressing and pressing and never joined anyone he just kept going and then he claimed second overtaking Gabor Selassie wow that's that's bold bold but what I want to know is what happened to Zach Panning he you've been up building up this huge story <laughs> 
he ended up 13th place. Wow. And he right. moved up the entire race. And I just love that because I felt like he executed the marathon magnificently. That's the way you got to do it. It's the crescendo, like the opera music. Oh, goodness. <laughs> we don't need to be making opera <laughs> analogies here. Well, what a race, in fact. And with all of that, so many dropping out as well. Um, it should be noted that in fourth place, I think it was the guy in fourth. Yep. Yeah, okay. I'm looking at the names again. Tabello Ramakangaona of Lesotho ran a marathon PR. In that, in those, those conditions. conditions. Yeah. Everyone's <laughs> dropping out left and right. And this guy finishes fourth place in a PR time as well. That's really impressive. How good. How good. How good. All right. Well, we have to say it's not our last one, but it's very nearly the end of our coverage here. The men's 5,000 did not live up to its hype and expectations. And Zach hyped it on the podcast. Everyone was hyping it. It was all over because the 5,000 in the world uh, in the world class competition uh, stages this year has just been insane. I don't think we've ever had a year quite like this. And then it didn't happen at the championships. And I have two guesses as to why. First, because it was a very different composition, a very different field than these Diamond League races. Um, you certainly have the likes of Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the race now, who never ran 5,000 in any of the Diamond Leagues. And then as well, a number of the kind of the big namers weren't there. Joshua Cheptegei, who won the 10,000, drops out of the 5,000, uh, some kind of injury. Foot, yeah, yep. foot problem. And, you know, that's saying something because he won that 10,000 in a blazing final lap. Clearly was in a little bit of pain, uh, caused himself some problems doing that. And so he's out. Now, that, that changes things, certainly. Uh, but also, countryman Jacob Caplimo, who's another one of the big names in this 5,000 circuit this year, did not run it. So what we, what we get to now is a race where the certainty is much less apparent. And I have to say, much like with the women's 5,000, if you are one of the guys who has not raced a race yet, the 5,000 was your first and only event of the championships, You've got to take advantage of that fact because these guys in the field are tired. Jacob Ingebrigtsen has been making excuses about losing that 1500 saying he was sick. So, you know, like if he's sick, you got to do something to take advantage of that. Right. And then some of these other guys ran the 10,000 who might not be quite as fresh and sharp and chipper, but no, it, it didn't happen. It didn't happen at all. I thought it was still an exciting race. It was fun. It was interesting. It was a story of revenge. Okay, it was a story of revenge because <laughs> and proving oneself because <laughs> Jacob Ingebrigtsen was beaten, as we mentioned, by Great Britain's Josh Kerr in the 1500 meter final, which is like his race. And right? for the second year in a row, Ingebrigtsen proves that he runs his finest with a chip on his shoulder because he last year won the 5000 after losing to Whiteman. This year comes away with another 5000 victory after losing to Kerr. And I got to say, he did it in the way that no one would have expected he was capable of doing right now because of the way he's looked in this championship circuit here. He kicked an insane last lap again. How he mustered that, despite all, the world will never know. But Spain's Moketeer, to his credit, did everything right to beat Ingebrigtsen in yeah. this race and yeah. had him beat until the last 25 meters mm -hmm. of the race. Just it was amazing. So Ingebrigtsen laid it on. I mean, he was laid flying. it on. 
was but he could have gone sooner because it came. There was nine men left at the bell. Yeah. In a five thousand. Yeah. That's a dense field. I mean, it's not all that much different from the women's race because it went out slow. Yeah. So that and and what that becomes is you know it's a kicker's day now. Mo Katir and Ingebrigtsen are both fifteen hundred meter guys with some very impressive fifteen hundred meter times. So it's no surprise that they finish one two. And then of course you're going to get things like. Um, Louis Grialva, who should have been a medal contender here if the race went the way it should have gone, but he's not quite got the same kick as some of these other guys, and he ends up He fourth. looked so looked good. Looked so good. He, the best I've ever seen him, really. He's like floating, and his cadence is really – he just looked like he's floating along. His cadence is really high. He looked really strong, just didn't have that extra edge. I think yeah. he was even there around the, the final turn. He was there. I mean, and then a lot of them were there around the final turn. But I'm just saying, like, it, <laughs> he was someone I was looking at during the race and thought, you know what? I think he could medal in this race. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he almost did for the second he time. He almost in a row. <laughs> did. It was Kenya's Jacob Crop yeah. who had the finer kick in this moment mm-hmm. and finished third, took uh, took home the bronze. Louis Grialva in fourth. And then what you end up with is the Ethiopians, Kajelcha and Gebrewet, both in fifth and sixth. And they. These guys have been showing up big on the circuit this year. So for them to get out kicked by the likes of Grialva and Jacob Krop is just shows all the more the the quality of those runners ahead of them. And then Canada's Mohamed in seventh in a tight finish there next to Berihu Aragawi of Ethiopia. What I'm the reason I'm saying all of this is because these guys all finished within like half a second of each other. Yeah. They were all right there from fourth through eighth. And then first and second were only another second in front of them. So it's just like, you know, this mad dash to the finish Mm -hmm. and who could get there first. And so when we tell you that Abdi Noor was 12th and Paul Chalimo 15th place, they were there. No, I mean, no, those guys, they weren't in it. I mean, they were, they, what I'm saying is, (laughs) is that their times could have, their fastest times that they have run could have been in contention with this race. Yeah. That you can't ever talk like that in a know, championship race though. So so okay. <laughs> a handful of these men have run in the 1240s. This race was run in 13 1311 for the win, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's where you get this this mad dash to the finish and see who comes out on top. Well, it was Inga Britson's day again despite uh, the loss earlier. So there you have it. He said in a post-race interview, and I thought this was kind of uncharacteristic of him, but he said that he had to run it exactly like that for him to win. He didn't think that there was any other strategy that would have worked for him because he wasn't feeling well and that he barely had it in the end. Well, he did so barely have it. He didn't it. say true. those words. I, I, I don't want to like misrepresent him, but I'm just saying like he, he said this is the only way I could have won was yeah. exactly this scenario, this strategy, and it worked out, but that it was that he wasn't his best. Well, we're nearly done, but we've got a couple more exciting notes, one of them being another one of the highly anticipated events, the women's 800 meters. And I have to say... I may have called this one. Yeah. He <laughs> I did. may have called this he one. He called this, and the announcers were surprised. It seems like everyone on Let's Run is surprised. Like, Why did no one think that Mary Mora of Kenya was going to win this race? I don't know, because she's so consistently on top. Well, not just that, but she's the one with all the momentum coming into this event in this season. 
And she clearly has been just right there in the past and knows that she needs to do something a little differently to win this. And she did it. She executed perfectly. perfectly. Yeah. So everyone's talking about a thing, Mo, the the defending world champ and Olympic champ. Everyone's talking about Keely Hodgkinson, the season world leader, as well as multiple time silver medalist behind the thing, Mo. And so, you know, that it's no surprise that the two of them are in these conversations as well. They should be. But Mary Mora has beat Keeley several times. It, it's something she does routinely, except for at the world championships. And she has been winning races and winning them in multiple ways all season this season. All the momentum. So we get into this race and f- through 400, what was A thing Mo is leading through 400 through the first lap. And A thing Mo is usually, you know, able to lead the first lap and then turn it on and pour it on even more. But she didn't have any separation. She had no space to give her any kind of comfortable lead. And Mary Mora and Keely Hodgkinson with a hundred meters to go just buried her. They, they had these crazy kicks. And unfortunately for a thing, Mo, she, she kind of made the worst possible last hundred meter choice. She drifted out a little bit and gave Keely Hodgkinson the inner lane and Mary Mora was on her shoulder on the outside lane already. And so they just went either side of her. Uh, but Mary Mora, when she finishes race, I have got to say that it was just one of the most, most fun things to see. She leapt across the finish line, <laughs> like jumped in the air, fist in the air across the finish line. I've never seen anyone do that. So she high was too. so excited that she couldn't even get to the finish before she just unleashed excitement. It was awesome. Yeah. Just like you got to see the photo because she's way up in the air, she's leaping across the finish. Keely Hodgkinson, a very close second. Mary Moore didn't have much real estate for a move a like celebration. that. Celebration, <laughs> an early celebration. <laughs> but I'm sure she couldn't even contain herself. Yeah. She just knew at that point she was winning. And then a thing Mo right behind Keely for a very strong bronze medal. And mm-hmm. the three of them yet again show that they are the class of the event right now. Another note: Mary Moore, I did run a personal best. Which is exciting as well. And like Zach had mentioned, she knows how to race. And that's why Zach thought, like, championship, this is the time. This is the time that Mary Mora will shine. So, yep. That she did. I do want to mention that Raven Rogers of the USA was fourth place. And this is a great (laughs) performance for her because she was injured not long ago either and has been making her way back to her normal i'm putting it in air quotes fitness and performed exceptionally well fourth place is really great for the season that she's had to bring herself through mm-hmm. and always show she just shows up really well at championship races and so mm-hmm. that fourth place finish is something to note and then nia akins from the usa 157 for a personal best yeah you gotta you gotta hand it to nia akins the race was just simply faster than anything she's ever been in to date with that many women running, you know, the top three were all under 157 and the top six were all under 158. No one ran over two minutes. Like this is, we're talking about fast start to finish in this field. And Nia Akins did what she could. And she ran, ran a personal best. best. Yeah. You can't ask for much more than that. It's exciting. Is this, this is her first world championships? I believe so. I, I'm not gonna, She's don't young. quote me. <laughs> yeah. So all around an exciting event and 
if if we were to have said how do we think that one's going to end, that's exactly how it ended. It was kind of cool to see. Now, with the, the final note, we don't have anything written here on it for some reason, but the women's steeplechase was also an, an interesting one because coming into this race, you've got world record holder Beatrice Chepkrich, who has uh, a season that has shown her back in top form. She's had some injury struggles and some other things historically, but uh, top form, looking great. But then you've got the youngster, Jacqueline Chepkwetch from Kenya, who's also been looking great. In fact, has the world-leading time this year, the only woman to run under nine minutes this year. And so between the two of them kind of duking it out a few different times this year, it just looks like, you know, this this might be a runaway race, maybe even like close to world record capacity type of thing. And the unexpected... Uh, you could say the unexpected intrusion on that prediction was Yavi, who has wide success at the world stage in the steeple, but has not been able to produce the kind of times like some of these other women. And yet, in the late stages of the race, Beatrice Chepkwetch puts the pressure on, which is not terribly surprising. She likes to do that in general. And so she does, and not many can hang with her, but Yavi latches onto her like that's where she belongs and just sits there. And then when it comes down to the last lap and the final kick, Yavi had another gear and another gear and ends up pulling out the victory in the fourth fastest time ever run in the women's steeplechase in the world championships to boot was incredible 854 for the steeple to win just smashingly very impressive finish and Beatrice Chepkwetch finishes second claims the silver medal still very strong it's gotten so much better over the years I think the that, women's steeple yeah and it was not been that long that we've had it as part of the world championships but we've just seen a really impressive progression for the women's steeplechase in the last few years yeah that that's been exciting now we we were talking about the americans a bit usa's courtney waymond struggled a bit in this one it was a brisk pace unlike some of these other races that were you know pedestrian for a long time and uh she's just she's not run as fast as some of these other women so that's to be expected that it would be a difficult time for but uh, made the, the final runners, but and showed up still made the final really good so with that, we have given you the best analysis and <laughs> reporting on the world championships that you can find anywhere. And you can see we just we love talking about this kind of stuff. We love talking about the certainly the races and the running that's happening, but we love talking about the stuff that you're doing as well. And that's why we share the A to Z runner updates. That's also why we answer questions like we did on the episode here. And so we always continue to encourage you to interact. Do the commenting on the places where commenting happens. I know that's a thing somewhere. And also share questions anytime. We'll share thoughts with you. We'll throw them into the episode at the end of the month every month. Just go to adzrunning.com slash question to do just that. I actually got our first question for the next episode we've got, today. Yes, so. <laughs> we've got a question already yeah. queued up for the next one. Yeah. So thank you for that and continue doing so. Mm-hmm. Last thing I want to give a shout out to Nathan Martin for winning the crim race in Michigan, which is a really big event, and there's great competition there. He's a previous podcast. I mean, he won it by like three minutes. He 
he so did. He, he kind of was uncontested in this instance. But I do want to give him a big shout out for that. We have had Nate Martin on the show and we are rooting for him as he's preparing and getting ready for the U.S. Olympic team trials. Zach is also going to be part of, but wanted to give him a shout out because he is living in Michigan as well. Right on. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk to you next week.